Our epistle reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, the third chapter, beginning in the 14th verse, and is a responsive reading. Let us read God's Word together. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom His whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses lives, that you may be filled with the message of all the glory. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Our Gospel reading is from the Gospel of Luke in the 8th chapter, beginning in the 40th verse. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed Him, for they were all expecting Him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with Him to come to His house, because His only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on His way, the crowds almost crushed Him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Him and touched the edge of His cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. If you're visiting this morning, we are in a study in the gospel according to Luke. We began during Advent season, during December, and we've taken it chapter, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, scene by scene. Uh, we come to yet another one this morning. Before we look at this passage in Luke 8, Beginning with verse 40, uh, let's pray and ask Jesus who was here and who's here this morning. Let's ask him to speak to us. 
Our Father, what a joy to be in your presence. What a joy to speak to you. Whether it's in hymns of praise. Whether it's in prayer. What a joy to hear you speak to us. Our Father, we come now to pray for, to be priests for Priscilla Turner. Father, this battle has been a long battle. And she has been a stalwart warrior, faithful, strong-hearted, confident. We pray that you would grow that confidence, grow that anticipation in her. And we pray that, Father, you would give her strength of body, strength of heart and soul. We pray for Carol Garner. We pray for her daughter, Susan. You know the needs are there, Father, and we pray that you would give Carol strength for this time. We pray that you would give Susan a heart of real confession, a heart of repentance, a heart that reaches for you and then, Father, trusts in you, trusts in your grace. And knows their forgiveness. There's forgiveness with you. Complete forgiveness. Our Father, we pray for Larry Shelley this morning. Our Father, you're able to heal when doctors have done all they can do. Father, we pray that you would give him years yet upon this earth. That seems impossible. But with you, all things are possible. Our Father, speak to him. Give him a strength of heart. A spiritual strength that can only come from you. Our Father, we pray that he would rest in you. We pray for Mr. and Mrs. Walker. Father, thank you for bringing Mrs. Walker through um, this surgery. And we pray that you would continue to strengthen her, continue to bring healing. Our Father is. We bow before you. We pray that you would bless our families. Cause us to be faithful husbands and wives. Cause us to be faithful children and parents. Father, we pray that you would raise up a generation out of Christ's Presbyterian Church like Fayette County has never seen. And now we pray as we open your word that you would speak to us. John Sartell cannot speak so that it will make any difference in our lives. But Father, you're able to speak so that we're changed from the inside out, so that we're profoundly, profoundly affected 
by your word, by your truth. Oh, Father, grow our minds, grow our hearts in your truth, in a love for your truth, in a love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What will Jesus do in your life this week? Four weeks ago, we met the women of Galilee, women that Jesus had healed, had rescued. It was an interesting lesson. We followed them from Galilee to Calvary. They were there at the cross. To the burial, they were there. To the empty tomb, they were there. They were the first ones there. And then to the upper room at Pentecost. Then the next week, we saw Jesus instantly stop a life-threatening storm. Stop it in its tracks on the Sea of Galilee. Then we saw him the next week free a man, in fact it was last week, free a man from powerful demonic forces. This week, the story continues. What will Jesus do next? What will Jesus do next? If we had been in the boat with him crossing back across the Sea of Galilee to the northwestern shore, we could have asked him, Jesus, what will you do when we get to shore? What are you going to do today and tomorrow? And in fact, our text suggests that maybe when you saw the title, What Will Jesus Do in Your Life This Week in the bulletin, you thought, what's that about? Well, look at the text, Luke 8, 40. It's there underneath the title in your bulletin. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. What were they expecting? They were expecting him to do something, to say something in their midst. Jesus, they were saying, Jesus, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? What will you do today? Now, many Christians today, would say, yes, we could ask those questions if we were there then, but Jesus is no longer here with us. Really? You need to go back and read your Bible. What was one of Jesus' last statements to the disciples? Look at Matthew 28, 20 on your scripture sheet. And surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. He was leaving his last words. I'm with you always. Always to the very end of the age. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus taught he would remain with the disciples in the presence, with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. Where were you this week as a Christian? I'm speaking to Christians. Believer, whose hearts have been changed and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. Where were you this week that Jesus was not also there with you? At work, 
at school, on the ball field, on the golf course, hunting, in your house, minding the children, changing diapers. Where were you that Jesus was not there? Now, we're not talking about his omnipresence, God's omnipresence. He's present with everybody everywhere. But Jesus was speaking to his people, specifically to his brothers and sisters. And our elder brother said, I will be with you. Not only that, he teaches that Scripture tells us that every day is a gift from him. We read in Psalms, this is a day the Lord has made. This day is a day the Lord's made. Every day that you have, every day that you have is a gift from him. Tomorrow will be a gift from him. Tuesday will be a gift from him. You can get up every single morning reminding you that God owns the day, that God made the day, that God gave it to you, and you can say, get up and say, this is a day you've made the Lord. You've made this day for me, Lord. You've made this day for my family. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In James 4, James is writing to Christians, to Christians, and he says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, what ought you to say? Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So in a very real way, we can begin each day. We can come to him this day. In this sanctuary. And say, Jesus, what will you do in our lives this week? What will you do in our lives today? Let's hear him answer that question. As we look at what he did when he returned to the northeast shore of Galilee. As those people waited in expectation and said, what are you going what? What are you going to do? What's next? Well, let's see what's next. And in it, we may learn what may be next in our lives. First, I want you to see in this passage that desperation may cause you to reorganize. This week, today, this month, desperation may cause you to reorganize your priorities. Look at Luke 8, 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. For they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl about 12, was dying. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke are careful to tell us that this man was a ruler in a synagogue. Why did they do that? All synagogues. All synagogues in Israel, they're in, in all these towns town of any size, there would be a synagogue. All the synagogues in Israel were well organized and connected with each other and ultimately connected to the Sanhedrin, 
in Jerusalem. To be a ruler in a local synagogue was to be a significant person. This well-organized leadership in the synagogues had been opposed to Jesus from the beginning. They considered his claims to be a Messiah, his claims of deity. They considered that to be blasphemy. They considered him to be a blasphemous man. Yet, here he was, a ruler of the synagogue, on his face before Jesus, begging him. Now picture that. We, it, we don't do this in our day, but picture Jesus standing there, and a man is simply not looking at him saying, please. He's actually, the words here, he is actually prostrate on the ground, begging Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Now, he had probably debated with himself. He had probably said, there's no way I can go to Jesus. I will, I'll lose my position. I might even be expelled. It would be embarrassing to our entire system for someone in my position to go to Jesus, to go to a false prophet. Why does Luke tell us that she was his only daughter? And that she was dying, not just sick. Luke was saying, this, is, this man's desperate. This is his only daughter. And she's not just sick. She's dying. This is a desperate situation. Desperation. God uses it to cause us to reorient our priorities. Here's this man saying, I may be a ruler in the synagogue. Our hierarchy may think this man is a false prophet and a blasphemer. But this one thing I know, this one thing I know, what is that one thing he knows? I know that he has healed people that are very sick. You see, desperation for the life of his daughter pressed the issue. This happens in all of our lives. Let me ask you a simple question. I'll prove it to you. You're just like me. You're just like me in that you pray more. I pray more. I get back to the basics of prayer when there's a dire need in my life. I'm not near as careful about praying when everything is copacetic, when everything is prospering, as I am when my back is against the wall. And I know you're the same way. What happens? Desperation drives us to reorganize, to get our priorities right, to reorganize our priorities. I'd known a man in our neighborhood for three years. We had talked many times. We had talked about his work. We'd talk about golf. He knew I was a minister. In our conversations, we never mentioned God, never mentioned the Bible, faith, or the church. When he was diagnosed with cancer, our conversations continued. He knew I cared, but there was still not a 
not one request for prayer. Even though I did tell him I was praying for him. Then one day, one day he called and asked me to come and see him. He had never done that. When I walked into his house, he was in bad shape. He said, John, I'm not going to be able to beat this. Only then did he become desperate enough to call. Only then did he lay down his pride, lay down his self-sufficiency. Only then did he give up. He literally said, I'm not prepared to meet God. I want to know if you can help me. Three years of conversation. But he was quite content until, what? He became desperate. That man died less than 24 hours later. He died. He prayed. Sometimes we wonder why God has brought hardship to our lives. Maybe we need to be desperate enough to reorganize our priorities. Desperation may force you to reorganize your priority. Secondly, I want you to see that he may force you to make, he he may force us, he may force us to make our faith public. This is so beautiful. Look at verse 43. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Jesus said, Someone touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now this woman was also desperate. Luke tells us that her condition was chronic. She had had this bleeding condition for 12 years. Mark tells us that she had seen so many doctors and spent so much money on doctors that she had no money left. She was quiet, probably embarrassed. So she said nothing to Jesus. She reached out and touched him. She was healed. She knew it. She thought she could just slip away. No one would know. And then Jesus asked, I love this. She's there. She's backed up. She knows she's here. And then she hears the words. He knew who had touched him. He knew why. (laughs) Jesus wasn't Asking someone to give him knowledge. He had the knowledge. He knew it touched him. He knew everything about that lady. He asked that for her benefit. 
This was not about Jesus discovering who touched him to be healed. This was Jesus saying, make your faith known. He drew her out. She fell at, her, at his feet. Now look, he, he, she did what he wanted. In the presence, look at verse 47, in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Stop. Many of us need to take a long look at this scene. We need to walk around the scene and think about our own reluctance to speak publicly about our faith. Most of us are very comfortable coming to the sanctuary on Sunday morning. We're comfortable coming to Wednesday evening forge, the forge meeting on Wednesday evening. We meet with Jesus. We hear him. We're blessed. We learn. Well, we don't say anything. We don't say anything out there. Many fathers are reluctant to speak to their sons and daughters about their faith. We leave here Sunday. We never mention our faith with friends we work with, with friends we play football with, friends we play basketball with, our neighbors. In this scene, Jesus is calling us out. Who touched me? Have you answered? Have you confessed that you touched Jesus, that you reached him in faith? There's plenty of people like this all through Scripture. Remember Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea? They both hid for a while. They were very wealthy, powerful men in Jesus' day. In Jerusalem, they were members of the Sanhedrin. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the man he told, you need to be born again? This self-righteous Pharisee came to him. When did he come to him? What time of day was it? In broad daylight, in the morning, where everybody, he came at night. He came at night when no one could see him. Joseph of Arimathea had become a follower of Christ. But he remained silent. Look at John 19.38 in your scripture sheet. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. I know so many Joseph of Arimathea, men and women, And they, I'll see them sometimes. I say, you know, that person, that person would go claim the body of Christ. Say, he would know or she would know that his, the disciples aren't going to claim this body. It's not going to happen. And they're too fearful, too afraid. But there was Joseph. Finally, there they are. They could not let Jesus' body be thrown on the garbage heap. They knew his disciples would not claim it. And there Joseph of Arimathea stood before Pilate. I don't think Nicodemus was with him right at that moment. Before the evening was, 
He was there. The Sanhedrin would discover, because of this encounter with Pilate, that two of their number were with Jesus. Pilate and the politically correct of the social scene in Jerusalem would know that these two men of Providence, they were really with Jesus. You see, Jesus had called them out with the crucifixion. He had said at the crucifixion, who's touched me? Who's reached out to me in faith? He'll do that with all of us. We may try to hide it. We may try to be silent. But I can tell you, you walk out of here today and you say, you know, I would really find it tough to talk to my children about God, about my faith. I'd really find it tough some of the people with whom I work to talk with about my faith. I'm not going to twist your arm. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to say, "Raise your hand." You and I need to talk. Because Jesus is going to do that. He's going to call you out. You're going to have to take. You're going to have to speak. You're going to have to say something. He'll do it. He does it with all of us. Ask the Father this week. Ask him right now to lead you this week in a very plain way. To speak as a follower of Christ. That you're a sinner. The phrase, we're just beggars. We're just beggars that have found bread. And we're telling other sinners where they can find bread, where they can find something to eat. He's calling you out this morning. Who touched me? What will Jesus do in your life this week? Inspiration may force you to reorganize your priorities. That's what happened in Galilee with Jairus that day. He may force you to make your faith public. That's what happened. That woman that was embarrassed by her disease. Thirdly, he may push us to look at our situations from his perspective. Now, this is really important. He may push us to look at our situations from his perspective. Look at Luke 8, verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, Someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe. She will be healed. You skip down to verse 52. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. I love this. She's just asleep. That's all. You Can you imagine? You're a neighbor. And you know the girl's dead? And here's this rabbi, and he's coming to the house. And he says, hey, stop wailing. She's just asleep. Now we want to say, Jesus was just using sleep as a metaphor for death. And the disciples misunderstood him. That would be true. But if that's all we make of it, then we don't understand the metaphor either. You see, this was a death-reducing metaphor. 
Jesus knew the girl was dead. When he said, she's not dead but asleep, he chose that metaphor. He chose that metaphor purposely. In Jesus' mind, calling a man from death to life was no more than waking a person from sleep. One of the mothers in this congregation this week, in school, was telling me about the first week of school. <laughs> and she said her, her, her son just did not want to get up. That he's like trying to wake the dead. I thought about what you'd said when, when I read this. Some of you may identify that as mothers or fathers. Your children just, oh, you can't get them up anymore. But you know they're not dead, don't you? You know they're not dead. You don't walk in and say to your husband, in, in speaking the truth, and say, I, I'm, I'm afraid Charlie's dead. I can't wake him. No, you, you can wake them. Jesus knew that girl was dead. But he thought no more about bringing her to life than you do waking your children. It's just that easy. He speaks and you got to get up. He used the same language with Lazarus. Look at John 11 on your scripture sheet. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, his disciples, they were still uh, far away from Bethany. They were on their way there uh, where Lazarus lived. After, this, he had, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. He'd been sick. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But he was purposely using the term of sleep to put death in its place. Death does not have. He was saying death doesn't have the final word. I do. I want to go to funerals with a Jesus like that. Paul told the Thessalonians to take Jesus to their funerals with them. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who, what? Fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left of the coming of the Lord, will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Where did Paul get that? He got it from Jesus. It's a death reducing metaphor. Because Jesus does have the final say. He does have the final word. Now here's the picture. He's, he's not saying that the soul is asleep. He, he, the, 
the soul. He said Jesus is going to bring with those, those who have gone before us. He's talking about the body, as it were, is asleep. The body has been laid to rest. He said Jesus is going to bring with him those who return, and there's going to be a resurrection. That's the picture. Just like you go and wake up Charlie or John or Sally or Susie or Peggy, whatever, Jesus is going to wake up the people that have gone before us, that have died. I really needed this message this week. In fact, I thought about changing, uh, just leaving off Luke for three or four weeks and doing another mini-series. I almost did that. But then I saw what was in this passage. I'm really speaking to John Sartell Sr. this morning. I've had eight funerals this summer. I hate death. I hate it. For 50 years as a minister, I've seen up close what it does to families. I've seen children. I've seen youth die. But even if someone lives a long life and dies at 85 or 90, death is still an enemy. One of the funerals I had was of a lady who was in her 90s. And time after time, people told me, oh, she had a great long life. As if to say, well, death is okay. Damn it, I want to tell you, death is never, ever, ever with Jesus okay. It's never. Don't be upset and leave and say, I can't believe our preacher said damn to the pulpit this morning. Let me tell you, Jesus said damn plenty of times. There's things that need to be damned, and death needs to be damned. That's what it is. And it's never pretty. I don't care whether you're 95 or 5. It's unacceptable. Jesus says death was a last enemy. I hate death. One of the funerals I had was for Charles Dugan. I've known Charles for 37 years. He built this pulpit with love for the church of Jesus Christ. He built that communion table. He built that baptismal fall. I preached his memorial service last week. He's only 56, 57 years old. My dear friend Larry Shelley, who's in Baptist East, he's usually sitting two-thirds way back on the right, or he's in the narthex getting a donut. His condition is critical. He almost died Tuesday night. He may not get out of the hospital. If he does, the prognosis is not good. I found myself in the last three weeks getting lost in the darkness. I found myself thinking about death 
as if it is the ultimate finality. I needed to hear Jesus say, John, John, John Snook is just asleep. He's with me right now. I needed that. I needed him to say, John, death is not going to have the final word with Larry Shelley. If I choose to take him home now, you're not going to be far behind. If I choose to leave him, You'll watch a few more ball games together. That's in his hands. And it's okay. Do you understand? You watch a spouse die. You watch a parent die. You watch somebody close to you. That's when you need Jesus' perspective. And it's not pie in the sky by and by. That's why he stopped storms. That's why he raised the dead. So that people would know that he speaks the truth, that he has that power. Maybe we need his perspective in dealing with our own deaths. Maybe right now as we sit here today, we're living without any real anticipation. Oh, we know that he promised to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. We know that he told us to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. He himself said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't get swallowed by the darkness. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to be with me where I am. Maybe we're living without anticipation. We know he made these promises. But has those promises become a reality? Have those promises become a reality to us? John Wesley was asked, if you knew you would die at 12 o'clock tomorrow night, how would you spend the intervening time? Let me ask you that right now. If you knew that 12 o'clock Monday night you were going to die, how would you spend the intervening time? Do you know what Wesley answered? Great answer. Why, just as I intend to spend it. I would preach tonight at Gloucester at the game tomorrow morning. After that, I would ride to Tewksbury, preach in the afternoon, meet the society in the evening. I should then repair to my friend Martin's house as he expects me, converse, eat, and pray with the family, retire to my room at 10 o'clock, commend myself to my heavenly father, lie down to sleep, and I'd wake up in glory. It's a great way to live and die, isn't it? 
How many of you, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow night, would go to work tomorrow morning? That's what Leslie said he would do. Why? Because we live with anticipation. We live with the truth. When our loved one dies, he or she goes to be with us. We'll see them again. When you come to die, when I come to die, will we be comforting our families before we leave by saying, to live is Christ, to die is gain? Will we be saying to our families as we're at, we're at the door, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because Jesus is with me. Will we talk to our family about the coming resurrection when we see each other again? Will we be telling our children and grandchildren to be sure to trust in Christ so that the chain will be unbroken? Will we be talking about Jesus and heaven and the resurrection, or will we be saying, I'm just tired of life. I'm tired of the sickness. I want to get it over with. People, there is a huge difference. What will Jesus do in our lives this week? Desperation may force you to reorganize your priorities. He may force you to make your faith more public. He may push you. He may push us to look at our situations from his perspective. And that's a much better perspective. Our hymn is a great hymn. Jesus, what a friend for sinners.